Hey everyone, welcome back to Leadership, the podcast where we talk about the social responsibility of business and look at who is stepping in it this week. And Adriel, I just have one question to ask you at the start of this episode, and that oh is, are CEOs okay? I, honestly, is anyone okay? Is anyone okay right now? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. Did oh. you see, I mean, right after la- we spent so much time last week mm-hmm. talking about CEO behavior, I mean, literally, I think it was like that afternoon we got done recording and another viral video of another CEO comes out. This time, a CEO celebrating a worker who sold their family dog after he demanded they return to office. <laughs> the The language alone sold the family dog just no words. I mean, you, let, let's be honest. This Vice News article I'm looking at, you know, they they specifically made it seem like of course like you're imagining like the most pathetic, saddest little dog ever. I know. But still, I mean, like, again, you're on video. Mm-hmm. You're on video. Just just maybe, like, don't do these things. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, at least we're seeing this person's true colors. <laughs> we, we know how yeah. they feel. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, like many people, think of my dog as part of my family. That's like my fur baby. I yeah. couldn't imagine, like, my family being disrupted because... I'm being encouraged to return to office and I don't have time to take care of someone or something, depending on who you are. That's a part of my family. It's just, it's so bizarre to me. It really is. I, yeah. My, our family dog is like my friend of me. That's what I call him. Cause he's uh he, he's constantly at my feed, like working, I work from home. So uh-huh. he's, he's just constantly with me and then he's like barking at things and then I'm yelling at him and he's yelling back at me. Yeah. And it's, got a love hate relationship yeah, it's fine it's okay um but yeah i just i this the you need what we need is more people taking adriel's inclusive leadership uh you know training and reading your book yes. and all of that because i'm just i don't i'm just so tired of these like ceo bad behavior stories it's yeah like, just just get it together. Just get it together. I agree. I agree. And the whole just return to office, forcing people to return to office and changing their lifestyles. It's just it it boggles my mind. It, it's like, have we let, just, not learned anything uh, over the past three years at all? There was this great story about what was called. They called it um, return to office whisperers. OK. In, in the Times <laughs> a few weeks ago that I, I read. That was actually really good. It was talking about there's this whole cottage industry popping mm-hmm. up around people who consult specifically on that issue because so many CEOs and senior leaders are having yeah. a hard time convincing workers to come back to the office. Yeah. And yeah. the one thing it said was that you can you can incentivize workers, you can show them the value of being in person, mm-hmm. but forcing them is always going to lead to a backlash. Yeah. Because there are genuine benefits you have to acknowledge for them not commuting, for them being at home. Like, there's, there are benefits to being in the office. Let's just stipulate that. But, like, you, you cannot mandate. The minute you mandate, the minute you are in for a world of cultural trouble. Absolutely. I, and I'll just add one more thing to this, the story that we were just talking about. The CEO in particular had, went on this whole rant about why he wants people to return to office, claiming that. I think he said some 30 employees hadn't opened their laptops for a month, which unclear how he even got gathered that data. But yeah. basically, so he's saying, admitting he's surveilling his employees what, for one right? thing. So that's and I'm cool. like, of course, that makes me want to come back to the office even more because you're over here, you know, trying to micromanage me and sur- like, wh- where's the privacy here? Am I not an adult? I, <laughs> like, what? I don't understand. How would 30 people not open their laptops and not have anyone who manages them, like, see that? Like, For I don't a month. understand how that would be possible. For an entire month. I call bullshit. Mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just early in the morning, but I call bullshit. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, what else happened this week? This is, I mean, Everything. I feel like I say this every week, but, like, insane. Let's just... Let's say up top that um, just this morning I saw the news that President Biden just finally announced his reelection mm-hmm. bid. Yep. Very anticipated. So not yep. not a yep. surprise. 
Um, how are you feeling about that, Adria? I know I've got mixed feelings about Biden's age, as I think everyone um, watching his reelection bid does. Not so much yeah. about the age he is now, but the age he will be if he serves another four years. I exactly. Mean, we're going on. We're going on records here. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, similarly, I have mixed feelings, and I certainly am concerned about his age. Um, which could be interesting because then we might have a black woman step into presidency, which could be interesting. So, um, cause it is I the really Biden wish Harris. I believed our country was ready for something like that. I, I wish, I I'm wish terrified I did. that given the current state of things, I'm terrified if that is, is that is something that is to happen. Um, but yeah, he's definitely up there in age, but it seems like he has a, a lot of support. Um, and I was reading an article about like older folks who are like, yes, he's representing us and also younger people who are just impressed. But, um, yeah, Yeah. we are, we're pushing historical numbers here. Also, I'm like, when are you, are you going to take any time to retire to just like breathe, to you look back and reflect on your life? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to think about his age and competency and all the things that come with just being you know like yeah being the age he is yeah in the context of senator feinstein not stepping down after missing i think it was 60 senate votes and the, the like call for her to really like let someone like mm-hmm. take her place oh wow so you know there's there's being com- there's comparisons out there to reagan and reagan's competency toward the end of his presidency sure. and he was younger than biden was mm-hmm. um, but obviously suffered from some different kinds of health issues so right i don't know i feel i obviously feel mixed about it do i think he's the best candidate to beat donald trump potentially mm-hmm. next year probably um you know do i wish it was someone younger <laughs> yes yeah um do i think he's done a good job yeah actually he hasn't been perfect i haven't agreed with everything he's done but i think he's what done president a, a... has been yeah exactly yeah. I, but i don't i don't not one of those people who looks for the people that i like to be perfect because mm-hmm. you know that's our job to kind of hold them accountable and push them mm-hmm. to do better but overall i think he's done a pretty pretty good job so i yeah. don't know yeah it'll be interesting we're kind of kicking off in earnest now the 2024 presidential season. So I'm sure this won't be the first time that we are bringing up political news on this podcast. It's going to be a wild ride. Brace yourself. Everyone hold on. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What else happened? So uh, Twitter had this (laughs) fantastic verification fiasco. On 420, they finally started pulling down the blue check marks Mm -hmm. from everyone who had previously been verified, only to leave up a few specific check marks like mm-hmm. lebron james and stephen king who are like wait why do i still have my check mark so and then they had to come out and be like i did not pay for it i did not pay for it did yeah you see this? they were like trying to try to make sure people knew that they didn't pay for it and then a few days later they just rolled it back for a ton of celebrities mm-hmm. and like high profile people because of of course just like the first time just like when they rolled out twitter blue just like People started all of this impersonation and it just became a shit show. Like yeah. this is this is what happens when you mess with the verification system and you don't make it about actually verifying people's identity. It's just so silly. And I mean, I guess a huge part of it was the money grab aspect, but it's just like what was the decision making process to leave certain people with their blue check marks to t- revoke it from others to, you know, start charging subscriptions. It's just it's a shit show. I mean, everything that he's been doing feels like a money grab at this point. He's like charging more for API access. Mm-hmm. He's he's trying to force advertisers, especially small advertisers, into getting Twitter blue in order right. to advertise. Right. Like he's just creating all of these money gates because he's desperate to find some avenues of revenue. Yep. Because he's driven away 70% of advertisers. Capitalism. And Elon. <laughs> what a mix. But it's like bad capitalism. Yeah. It's not even it's not even good capitalism. Like he yeah. came in and drove away. He paid forty-four billion dollars for his company and he came in and he drove the cost or the uh the valuation of it down right. to somewhere in the single figures. Like right. he just uh it's 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 sad watching a train wreck. I just I still have so many good friends on Twitter. I still remember yeah. like meeting so many good people there. Like I just have such affinity still for the platform and to watch it be just circling the drain. It's has... it's unfortunate, truly. Um, you know, it it was so interesting when it was announced that 
Musk was taking over Twitter and how many people were up in arms, people left the platform. I don't know, from my timeline, my timeline is still very, very active and no one's left, really. Um, and so it's I really was one of those people. I left yeah. and then I ended up coming back. Really? There, well, there was this, I, I shouldn't say I didn't delete. I just paused. I okay. said, I want to wait and see what happens. Sure. I don't really agree with the direction Musk wants to take the platform. I mean, he came in and immediately like, replatformed a bunch oh, of yeah. Nazis. Yeah. I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be part of this. Mm-hmm. But then um, I tried a few quote unquote Twitter competitors. Right. And what happened was that the Twitter refugees from the platform went to a bunch of different places. Mm-hmm. There was not really a specific, you know, one that everyone agreed on. Right. I tried post. I tried Mastodon. I tried all of those. Mm-hmm. No, none of them really gave me the experience that I was looking for that I used to get on Twitter. Not, right. not Twitter now, but the like Twitter of old yeah. where it was like a people that I knew that we could converse about like the day's news or like react to the day's news together. But I could also kind of get to know people. And right. it was just, it, it like the, it became a bunch of echo chambers that right. I was trying. It was like a bunch of people on other platforms talking about how bad Twitter was going. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to come off Twitter just to talk, just to about, talk Twitter. about Twitter. Exactly. And it's, it's unfortunate, but I mean, Twitter took years to, to get to that place. Right. And so I think yeah. it's, highly unlikely that we're going to just hop on over to a singular platform that we all agree on and and recreate Twitter in some way or have that same feel. Um, But this is a great example of how impactful leadership can be. Like literally Elon came in and just flipped this thing on its head and changed the entire energy, the vibes of Twitter, people up and left, people came back. And it's just I don't know, just a great example of, of the impact of leadership, whether you look at it as good or bad, it just shows how your actions, large and small, can impact an entire organization and population. We're talking a portion of society. So many people are on Twitter globally. So it's just interesting. I still remember there was a tweet that um, captured it right when right when Musk's purchase. And I don't remember who it was or Mm -hmm. I give them credit, but they were like, it's like it's like buying the Library of Alexandria and thinking about it as a building. (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> oh goodness that is a great example <laughs> who cares what's on the inside look at the outside i know <laughs> great building i know oh wow uh what else happened this week um florida continues to be florida yep pu- pushing even more anti-trans legislation this one like basically would allow um you know trans kids to be separated from their parents and it's it's just, written in a way that's very broad in a way that like they don't even need to live live in the same state like it's it's wild. Wow. I just every week it feels like we talk about Florida, we talk about AI mm-hmm. and there's like things that continue to drive the news and not yeah, Florida AI and CEO behavior. Yes. Those are apparently the pillars of our podcast now. For sure. I'm, I just I don't want to talk about Florida, but they are at the forefront of some of the worst legislation in this country. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, like they are a model now for all kinds of red state rollback, like just insane local legislation yeah. in a way that's super frustrating to me. It's scary. <laughs> and I'll, I'll touch on them during my deep dive today. No surprise. Oh, oh there. good. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to that. Oh, yes. Um. What else? Oh, oh, we can't not talk about after the Fox News settlement. Oh, yes. Tucker Carlson was pushed out. Kaput. And then on the same day, Don Lemon was fired from CNN. Yes. What it's... is going on? I mean, I'm sure those are unrelated, but happening like back to back was fascinating. Are they unrelated? It's just so how is it on the same day? It just after all these years of both of them being with those networks. Yeah, I just right? I can't even I mean, process Tucker, it. Or, Don Lemon had that controversy over what he was like the really sexist remarks he was saying yes. on air of just a few months ago. So right. he was kind of on thin ice. Right. And I think if I remember the the ins and outs of the story, some other things were starting to come up, and I think they just started to see him as more of a liability than mm-hmm. an asset. Mm-hmm. That the Tucker Carlson thing is wild to me yeah. because he was like a ratings magnet for Fox News in a way that I think it's going to take them a little bit to replace. Yeah, to find the next white 
man bigot that's going to be the in the succession of uh Tucker Carlson and um I don't know if it's gonna the, take oh, Bill O'Reilly and you know like who's the next white grievance that they're going to platform and get their ratings back but oh, like who knows? they had just I don't know if this it had to have been related to the settlement right but I would it's, assume it's so wild I would assume so I mean it was what pushing a billion dollars not that Fox doesn't have the money but my my guess is it's yeah. related to that. Um, I don't think it's going to take them that long to to recoup personally, but yeah, there's plenty, plenty of, of uh, you know victimized white men no out shortage. there that they can they can platform. <laughs> no shortage at all. <laughs> Speaking of news, BuzzFeed News is no more, and they did I some know. layoffs. Uh, yeah, which is a they're just terrifying. shutting down their news division altogether. Yeah, which is they crazy. they were actually a pretty decent news source. Um, so yeah. I mean, you know, it's unfortunate to see them go. I mean, I remember when BuzzFeed News was created and mm-hmm. BuzzFeed, you know, for a long time had been this kind of listicle, you know, like the a joke about like online content that right. just was, you know, not that substantive. And then they created this news division and yep. got got some acclaim like out of the gate about how they were handling it and how they yeah. kind of balanced that with their with their normal <laughs> listicle type. Yeah. You yeah. know, fluffy content, and I guess the I don't know listicles one. I don't. <laughs> I don't <laughs> what know. Is, what does it say about the state of journalism in twenty twenty three? I don't know. Hard. It's it's hard to say. I mean, there's just so much going on. I think we're just seeing so much change happening right now. Yeah. Um. So it'll be interesting to see, especially as this aligns with us going into this twenty twenty four election season. I'm really curious. Exactly. Really curious. Exactly. We're having some major shakeups in journalism mm-hmm. and newsrooms. Um and right ahead of the twenty twenty four presidential election, it's gonna be interesting to see who rises to the surface, who becomes kind of prominent voices in that election. Cause yeah. um, presidential elections really make or break some um, you know, these talking heads especially. Absolutely. Oh, well, all right i feel like we barely well, scratched the surface but i know we gotta get into seriously. these deep dives <laughs> just like skated along <laughs> some serious news topics that we could spend an entire podcast on yeah but um speaking of florida what what is your story <laughs> that you that it touches on our state to the south yeah well not just florida um but we are <laughs> i laugh because it's just like you know laugh now cry later but we're at a point where lawmakers in 19 states have taken up legislation to limit or block university DEI related programming. Um, and so there was a nice, <laughs> very uh, in depth write up about University of Virginia in particular, which was really interesting. But um, I, I think we mentioned it before on a previous um, episode where we were just talking, or I was probably going on a rant <laughs> about Florida <laughs> and DeSantis and, you know, the Stop Woke Act and how they've been pushing for, um, you know, universities, including private universities, to pretty much eliminate anything related to DEI. That includes any DEI statements, that includes considering um, a student's diversity when it comes to applications and. Um, being accepted and a host of other things. It also affects the tenure of certain faculty and how, um, you know, faculty members are even placed into these roles and who's actually deciding. So there are a lot of layers to it, but that's what I want to get into today. How about you? What are you bringing? Real quick before I I do mine, I will say I'm celebrating a bit that this right-wing performative nonsense that DeSantis seems to have made his brand isn't really helping him with the 2024 bid. It doesn't seem to be working. It's like, you know, it's almost like when you just go on culture wars and that's your entire thing and there isn't a lot of substance there. Yeah. It's not going to actually be a great platform to stand on. Yeah. And he released a book as well, I believe. I wonder, I haven't read it, but I wonder what impact that's had on his journey to 2024. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of 2024, unfortunately, we're probably going to be talking about DeSantis more in the coming weeks. Um, (laughs) My, my deep dive. I want to go into this uh, New York times story, which (laughs) I love the title of this. Definitely got my attention. It's called, do you even decarbonize bro? (laughs) What? Oh, it's it's a story that's talking about the quote unquote decarb bros of Silicon Valley that are focused on, you know, climate change and environmental tech. 
And huh. the reason I want to talk about it is not only because I think the kind of, um, I don't know, tribal nature of like calling yourself a decarb bro is fascinating. Sure. But the, the point of the article is really that they are trying to approach environmental problems, problems of, you know, carbon um, emissions mm-hmm. in a very positive way. Like we can actually solve this. And, hmm. you know, one of the people they interview says we are against doomerism. And it's basically saying like the, the whole climate change narrative has been so pessimistic and mm-hmm. so negative that we don't think we can solve it. Like no one thinks there are solutions. Like we're just all doomed. Sure. And I think that is actually a really interesting thing to dive into, like how we talk about how we talk about any hard problems, anything that seems like really intransigent and hard to solve, but especially Mm -hmm. as it relates to climate change, because there's been a lot of research over the years about how we have talked about this issue, and it has not helped us actually make progress on it. Right. Huh. All right. So let's let's get into our deep dive. Let's do it. All right, so um, let, let me just continue with this story a little bit on the decarb bros. So <laughs> I just, I, I think the, the initial reaction I had to this, especially in light of the Elon Musk Twitter takeover, mm-hmm. is like there are just, this, there's a brand of Silicon Valley bro that I have bristled at. Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you, you might have as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know you kind of you kind of imagine them as these like i don't know vc startup people wearing patagonia vests that um <laughs> you know basically like are slightly libertarian sure. and you know like think that their ideas are better than any kind of government ideas for yes. solutions so of course i kind of came in this with a little bit of a little bit of skepticism and and you know, came out of it, honestly, still a little bit, a little bit skeptical. Mm-hmm. But I what was appreciative of the the optimism and the pragmatism they had that like, we have the tools, the solutions are here. This is one quote in the article, the solutions are here, we just need to deploy them. Hmm. Deploy is such a, a tech is, way of, yes. of talking about oh that, by the way. But but they're basically saying, like, no, we have the we have the capacity to solve these big, hard climate problems. We sure. have the technology is advancing. We can actually do this. And I I actually really appreciated the idea that there are smart, hopefully pragmatic people out there trying to solve this problem in a way that is encouraging. Right. And I think that if you look at the trend on things like carbon removal technology, not just like we talk about net zero impact often in this, like, we have to just stop what we're doing now. Like, we have to stop putting carbon out into the atmosphere. Right. Which is 100% true. We have not moved fast enough to stop doing that. But there's also a lot of technology that has been about carbon removal. Mm-hmm. So about, like, the carbon that is in the atmosphere right now being removed from the atmosphere. Sure. So basically, like, reversing the impact a little bit. And that technology is also being applied to things like, you know, uh, factories so that the Mm -hmm. emissions that are, they immediately remove the carbon before it even goes into the atmosphere, right? Eventually, we're going to get to, you know, that point. Right. But I do think, you know, they have a point that like the technology is helping here Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it can help in some really fascinating, substantial ways in ways that we should feel optimistic about in ways that we should be encouraged by. Sure. And I, the research about how we have talked about climate change over the last 30 years always points to, we talk, you know, we talked about the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, what was it, three-ish weeks ago, three, yes. four weeks ago, mm-hmm. and how it, like, barely made a dent because we know, all, like, oh, yep, the world's fucked. Nothing like, new. Like, we've, we've heard about this <laughs> right. how many times, right? right? And that's the point is that we have, we have made it such doom and gloom mm-hmm. the people have like we just don't think that there's anything we can do about it so we do nothing right right we do nothing on an individual level we definitely don't do anything on a corporate level that's for sure you know and so the way that climate change communication has been critiqued over the years is a lot about like making people feel like there is hope so that they feel like they have a role to play in getting us to a cleaner healthier not burning down world right right 
What do you think, I guess, and maybe the article kind of talks about this, but why is it that we just sort of keep regurgitating the facts that we know, but don't actually take any practical steps to solving for this? Is it a money thing? Is it that we just are so focused on other pressing issues? Like, why, why is this something that we constantly sweep under the rug, knowing that it's having such a big impact on our world as a whole and is going to impact generations if they make it? <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, I mean, we had this uh, thing we used to talk about at OFA and, and in the nonprofit world, they talk about this a lot. Yeah. And that is, what is your theory of change? Hmm. Meaning that it's not, okay. it's not enough to just talk about how things are broken. It's what role are you playing in making them better? And then what is my role in that larger sure. narrative? So if you think that climate change is a, an existential problem, mm-hmm. what are the suite of solutions that we need to do to solve that problem? Right. And then what is, within that suite of solutions, what's the thing that matters most to me? And mm-hmm. then what's the thing that I can be doing now, the small thing that I can be doing now, that's going to have a larger impact collectively if we all do it together? Got so it. like, yeah. that's... That to me is what we're missing a lot from this conversation is we talk about this big, intransigent, feels like impossible to solve problem. Right, right. But we don't actually give people a role to play in making it better. Mm -hmm. Or even oftentimes like talk about what solutions matter the most. Like I think think the problem with climate change is many, over many, many decades – the corporate world has convinced us that it is a personal issue mm-hmm. that involves us like saving, I don't know, straws from going into the ocean or, or, or more, more recently switching to EVs. Right. Yeah. All of this matters. Oh don't goodness. get me wrong. These aren't positive things that we can't do. Right. But most of the carbon being pumped into the atmosphere is being pumped into the atmosphere by a handful of companies, like a very small set subset of industries. Right. And they have wanted to deflect from that truth Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so part of it is a legal or a a political problem right Right. like we need regulation of those companies we needed we need leaders to be pushing on this yes a lot more than they actually have been and in order for us to do that we need to be organizing and need to be involved in the political sphere we also need people in within companies i think this is why esg to some extent is encouraging is mm-hmm. like within companies organizing to make companies themselves better and so we're starting to see some traction there and so that that's what i mean is that you've got to got to give people a sense of if i do that like if i'm going to switch my buying habits to products that are more carbon neutral yeah like is that actually going to make a difference if this if the issue is all of these things that I have no control over mm-hmm. like it's a, it's an issue of not feeling not feeling like you're in control so like why would I if this these industries aren't really changing their behavior fast enough what does it matter if I change right mine? right and that's right? yeah and I think it's more of a distraction than anything else right um I almost wonder is it that it's just such a huge ask that the government doesn't want people coming and knocking at their door to say, hey, what are you doing about climate change? Um, and what would happen it's if part of it, sure. you know, <laughs> what would happen if more of us, more of us sort of, you know, just regular, regular citizens started to become aware of the fact that, you know, me recycling my Starbucks cup isn't actually the problem or not recycling it. It's more so yeah. these, these handful of companies, as you mentioned, that are um, taking part in all these carbon emissions. And um, most people aren't aware of that. I mean, I spoke to someone recently who was like, carbon uh, or climate change isn't real. And I was just like, are, are we living in the what? same world? Yeah. <laughs> I just, are, are you okay? Um, but they were so convinced. They were like, no, I don't think it's a real thing. And I'm just like... I was speechless almost, but it just, yeah, it just goes to show, you know, and this was a fairly intelligent person from my standpoint, and it just goes to show, you know, how this discussion is not commonplace, how many folks are not aware of what's really going on when we're talking about carbon emissions and who's responsible and who should be owning it. Like, as you mentioned, leaders actually calling out these companies, setting some standards, creating some kind of regulation, but we haven't seen it. And, yeah, you know, if people are doing it, it hasn't been enacted 
in any way, and we're not aware of it as average citizens. It's wild to me that someone in 2023, mm-hmm. in the year of our Lord, 2023, uh, can still not believe in climate change, yep. considering the impacts of climate change we are seeing in real life right now. Just, like It's just not just outside, us looking folks. at scientific <laughs> studies anymore. We are constantly having extreme weather events and all kinds of, you know, yes. proof points that our climate is changing. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, what I, I like the optimism. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously skeptical of the techno-utopianism that this article presents. It's very Silicon Valley in terms of believing that technology is going to solve everything and that we don't even have to worry about it. Like, we just need to lean in sure. and technology is going to do it all. I don't think, I, I think that tech has a huge role to play in this. Don't, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scientific community at large has a huge role to play. But so does the pre- public sector. So does government. Sure. Um, and to our point of this podcast, so do corporate leaders in terms of changing corporate behavior. Like we need some internal change makers that are going to, you know, force companies internally to be better and more accountable to the public and more accountable to society. Yeah. I'm encouraged, like, I obviously and and can dip into this kind of doomerism mentality, especially when things like that climate change report panel come come out. But I I don't know. I'm I'm I think there's more happening behind the scenes that we don't hear about on a day to day basis in terms of like technological disruption that mm-hmm. um you know make me encouraged. Yeah. Um <laughs> just to kind of lean into that point you made about um just even the word deploy just tells you a lot about who is involved in this process and who who was kind of featured in talking about these solutions the decard bros and i think there's just such a lack of inclusion it it goes to show that um there's such a lack of inclusion in terms of who's working on this and um even they themselves seem to have a very narrow perspective and our kind of tunnel vision into their experiences, their viewpoints without realizing again, that folks are not speaking the same language. Like the average person is not going to know what you say when we just need to deploy them. Like what are we talking about the army? Um, which is where, <laughs> you know, a lot of the, the language came from in the tech space. But um, yeah. my point being there, it, when I read articles like this, I'm like, there is a clear lack of inclusion and diversity here um, in terms of who's working on this and how they're thinking about, the solutions yeah 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 what wasn't clear to me is um whether or not they're called decarb bros almost ironically because of the <laughs> like how bros has been oh, deployed goodness. deployed you get it oh, deployed in silicon valley <laughs> um or if it is actually majority men i'm sure it's most i'm sure it's mostly the latter yeah the one i i don't know if you're familiar with um long-termism and William McCaskill and all like the people influencing a lot of these Silicon Valley um, thought leaders mm-hmm. actually aren't that concerned about climate change. This is this is really fascinating to me. Part of the optimism here in this article, and and I don't know if these the people in this article, it do, it's not clear if they actually subscribe to something like long termism. But basically, mm-hmm. the argument is that the actual problems that we have to face are are on longer timelines than climate change. Climate change is going to have an impact in the next 100 years-ish, right? Really in the next 10, if you believe this Mm -hmm. intergovernmental panel on climate change. And it's having an impact now. But but it's solvable, let's say, in the next 100 years. But they are worried about the impact of something like artificial intelligence in the next, like, 500 years, the next 1,000 years. Like, they are looking way, 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 way into the future. Mm. And... It's funny because in a way that gives them a perspective like, oh, no, these are solvable problems right now. And they are worried about the things that we can't even predict. Sure. That's right? so interesting. Isn't it? Like, we, like right now, climate change feels like the biggest, most intransigent, scariest problem. And they're like, no, we'll solve that. Yeah. Decar bros, we got this. What we should be worried about is like artificial intelligence over, over you know, the timeline of the next thousand years. I'm like, oh, my God. That's so interesting. Now you've got me like really curious about um, this concept. I just I had to look yeah. it up, but um, a BBC article is saying long termism is a view that positively influencing the long term future is a key moral priority of our time. It's about yes. taking seriously the sheer scale of the future and how high stakes uh, might be in shaping it. 
Huh. Yeah. I mean, we could go into a rabbit hole about oh, this, goodness. but if you read What We Owe the Future by William McCaskill, you'll get okay. a little bit of a sense of this. It, it grew out of the, uh, what's the um, uh, uh, ethical philosophy that's about kind of pragmatism? Oh, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it. Um, I'll, I'll look it up and, and tell you in a minute. But Please share, yes. The, it basically grew out, like you said, the, the idea that we owe that there are millions and billions of people that are in the future that we are making ethical decisions for right now. And we owe, a, in some sense, a greater responsibility to those mm -hmm. people than we do the people right in front of us. So but this was one of the biggest critiques of like that letter asking people to pause AI mm -hmm. from a few weeks ago is basically saying like, we are so worried about the AI in the future that we're not talking about the ai ethics right now about how this is affecting people right now right oh goodness effective altruism that was what i was trying to think of effective the effective altruism, altruism okay. movement anyway yes that's that's a whole side note to silicon valley culture but decar bros D -car don't bros. count me in as one but i'm i'm watching what you're doing <laughs> oh, all right goodness. uh what are you bringing to us yeah, so I mentioned earlier that um, we are at a point where roughly um, 19 states have taken up legislation to limit or block university DEI programs. We've talked quite a bit about DeSantis already. We've seen some movement happening in Texas, um, amongst other places. There's also there's, there's a site now where they're tracking um, these anti-DEI movements, which is really interesting. Um, oh God, there's so many that we need a, there are we need a so data many. source to be able to track all of them. Yeah, you, you do. And it's, it's a little scary um, <laughs> because it's, again, I, I think I mentioned this before, but like, what is the, the larger impact thinking about long-termism? <laughs> I guess this is like midtermism. Um, but like, what is the, <laughs> the impact that these changes that are happening within universities going to have on our society as a whole? Um, at the University of Virginia, there was an alumnus who has donated a significant amount of money, like I think some 10 million or something like that. Um, and he was appointed to the to UVA's uh, Board of Trustees. And he is very known for his objections to DEI. And he, his argument is that the university is already diverse. I think at the moment they're at like, you know, they were really looking at like black and, and Hispanic or Latina students. And I think the black student population is like six or seven percent when Virginia has like a population of 20 percent black folks, which is pretty wild, actually, um, and, a, and a rather high wow. number considering across the nation. It's roughly I think black folks make up like 13 to 14 percent, um, which right. may be higher, maybe less than now. Who knows? We'll have to see after the next census. Um, but his argument is that UVA is already diverse. Um, he also takes issues with how the founder, which was Thomas Jefferson, is often portrayed because, you know, for example, when they go on tours, they tell people about how Thomas Jefferson fathered children with one of his uh, uh, enslaved folks. And he I, I does heard not something like about that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and he also like uh, co-founded this descendant alumni group called the Jefferson Council. So he's got all these things going on. Um, what was really interesting that I was like, wow, they are letting this man just do what he wants to do. There was a student who put a poster on their door and he like petitioned with the president of UVA to have it taken down, going so far as to go on campus. And he was like steps away from knocking on the student's door to confront them about this sign. I, I just... My goodness. And the university was like, no, freedom of speech. They're not bothering anyone. They're not hurting anyone. Let them have their sign. So it's just um, this is just another example of the sort of anti-DEI movement that we're seeing. And it's just it's really frustrating because from what I've seen, uh, you know, with a lot of these situations is that there is a misunderstanding of what DEI is. And then there's also just pushback on people who fear diversity in any capacity or equity because there is fear of you know some of their power being taken away whether they want to admit it or not um and there's plenty of research about this <laughs> um, i talk about it all the time how people are fearful of confrontation they're fearful of having their power taken away or stripped from them and so there is just this immediate reaction to oh i don't want dei without fully comprehending the effects and how beneficial it can be 
um, UVA has proven that they've benefited from a lot of the DEI programming. Um, they've increased representation on campus they, through not only their students, but also their professors. They like added, I, don't, I can't remember how many um, black professors to their architecture program, which is unheard of. Um, black architects in general in this country are almost unheard of. So, you know, it, it, the programs have been working. Um, but again, you have these folks who have money that push back and that kind of, I don't know, somehow get their way. I mean, we're seeing again, 19 different states that are pushing back against DEI programming. So just curious to see where it goes, curious to see how other leaders are going to push back in these instances and these situations, you know, and I think UVA is going to be interesting to follow one to follow because Thomas Jefferson founded it and, you know, they're, you know, trying to change how, you know, this group that this person, his name is Ellis, um, Bert Ellis, the alumni or alumnus, he, you know, he's pushing back on what's essentially history because he doesn't want Thomas Jefferson to be portrayed in yeah. what is just reality, which is what happened. Um, I mean, it's, it's a subset of the larger, you know, critical race theory bullshit yep. that's about like we don't want your quote unquote your version of history being taught even though it's just just history yep it's uh, let me ask you this as a dei sure. expert adriel <laughs> yeah is having a diverse student population enough is that is that all diversity, equity, and inclusion is is no. Uh, quotas no and <laughs> and that's the thing right and ideally folks shouldn't be going after quotas. There should be a goal, obviously for legal reasons when it comes to diversifying, you know, the student population or even, you know, if we're thinking about faculty and staff, but it's more than that, right? We are also seeing attacks on actual academia. So, you know, speaking of Florida, um, the college board is making changes to the framework of um, their AP African-American studies courses for high school students um, in Florida because of criticism. And they're caving yet again to um, DeSantis. So um, it's not just about diversity in terms of people. We are talking about freedom of speech, freedom of learning and, and, and academia. Um, we're talking about equity in certain instances, like we are thinking about pay for our faculty and especially our tenured faculty. Is it fair? Is it equitable? We're thinking about inclusion when students are on campus. Sure, you can bring, we could ramp up at UVA and, and make it so that there are 20% black students, but are they going to feel safe on campus, a campus that was right. founded by Thomas Jefferson? I don't know, right? But if we're not taking the time and the, the effort and the money and resources to support those goals, it's not going to happen. So that was the long-winded version of no, it's not just about <laughs> diversity in the numbers. It's so much more than that. And the examples I just shared are barely scratching the surface. There are other things as well, of course. Yeah, there are. I just, I can't imagine, I'm trying to get in this headspace of, imagine being incredibly wealthy Mm -hmm. incredibly privileged and this is what you choose to spend your time and energy on yep like how afraid do you have to be about whatever your quote-unquote your culture disappearing or whatever whatever you know goes on in the heads of people like this that yeah. you you spend so much time and energy to the point like you said of showing up in person in a student's dorm yep because you're so threatened by this. Yeah. Like, I just, I can't imagine having, I'm trying to have empathy, honestly, like have like that level of fear. Yeah. Like, how afraid do you have to be in order to spend so much time and money on something like this? Like, right. I just, it's, it's crazy to me. It, 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 it really is. Um, and, you know, in a situation like this, it's like, how do you get leaders aligned on how to even address this. I mean, we're talking about someone who is appointed to a, an advisory board that funds the university millions of dollars. And so yeah. from the university standpoint, from a business standpoint, please, they're not getting rid of him. <laughs> like, they're just not. So they're probably doing what they can to, 
you know, make him happy in some way, but also recognize that they don't want to reverse all of the work that they put in and the money. I mean, they've spent a significant amount of money on their DEI programming, um, which yeah. this this person has claims, you know, enforces groupthink and creates arbitrary diversity goals and oh, my favorite, lowers academic standards, right? Which is a very common one. We see that one in the workplace where people are like, oh, well, if we try to diversify our workforce, that means that we have to lower our qualifications or requirements. Not true. (laughs) It's all bullshit. Um, In most instances, a lot of historically marginalized folks have been working twice as hard, if not harder, to get where they are. So that is not the case. Exactly. Um, exactly. So it's it's just frustrating. Um, and of course, yet again, money plays a huge role and power plays a huge role in how far this individual and other individuals like him are going to get in terms of being able to even get this to a point where it's part of legislation um, that limits or even blocks DEI programming and, and falls into the hands of lawmakers. So, right. We'll see what happens. I just, I want UVA, you, it sounds like from what you're saying, UVA is doing the right thing here in terms of pushing back. But I just want, I want to, I want to give a shout out across the board to any company, any college, whatever it is, mm-hmm. who's getting this kind of pushback on your DEI programs. Just stand your ground. God, I hate even using that <laughs> phrase know. now because of Florida, but just, you know, have some spine in this fight because you're doing the right thing over the long term. And these, this is like the old guard, like crying about their culture changing, but it is the right thing. It yeah. is the right thing. Don't be Bud Light. Do not be, uh, don't, don't be Anheuser Busch. Don't oh, like goodness. lose your spine when you try to do the right thing. Uh, speaking of I don't which, know if there you've was seen, an well, update. We didn't, I was going to say, we didn't talk about this, but the, right. uh, the, some of the staff on that uh, marketing team were, I think they were like either fired or put on leave or something. Basically, yeah. there was a shakeup because of uh, that. Uh, it sounded like from reading between the lines that it didn't, the decision to work with Dylan Mulvaney wasn't escalated enough to where huh. they felt like the senior leaders were accountable. And this was made by some like lower level brand, you know, people. I but find again, that that's hard bullshit. to believe. That it's is bullshit. That is pure bullshit. You, Anheuser Bush. Any marketing, <laughs> you think they were able to push, some low-level person was able to push that out on a nas- nationwide scale, making global news? Please. Please. I know. Uh, My anyway, God. Um, what is the website that you were saying that kind of is tracking a oh. lot of these anti-DEI efforts? Do you remember? Uh, it's actually the Chronicle, so the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, there's a DEI legislation tracker. It is paywalled but per the usual you can access a few free articles um good on the chronicle for trying to track all of this yeah i just i have my gripes with with journalism and news sources that paywall important information like this i'm like can you just paywall the bullshit articles but not the ones that people really need to see like this right I have my I have my gripes with paywalls in general. Yes. Given how easy most of them are to get around. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it just seems silly to me. Anyway, agreed. Um. All right. Well, let's talk about. We are going to switch it up this week. Yes. And instead of doing one more thing at the end of our podcast, per our conversation last week about trying to bring some positivity into the world, yeah. we don't just want to talk about all the ways people are getting it wrong, but we want to make sure we're talking about some ways that people are getting it right and also just you know what's going on out in the news that is worth highlighting that is something um positive so we're gonna we're gonna start changing our one more thing at the end of the pod to one good thing yeah are you ready for it adriel i am as ready as i'm gonna get (laughs) (laughs) let's do it all right let's talk about one good thing for the week then um i'll go first so one good thing that I saw, there was a report that um, LinkedIn put out. LinkedIn's do, been doing some fascinating workplace research mm-hmm. uh, recently. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but they've, they've been reporting, putting out some really great stuff. And they've yes. got so much good data about shifting the shifting workforce because of, you know, the users on their platform. Mm-hmm. But they put out a report called Skills First, Reimagining the Labor Market and Breaking Down Barriers. And what it means by skills first is that there are more and more employers who are starting to 
basically remove the education requirement Mm -hmm. from their job posting and talk about, you know, to your point about who, uh, you know, is qualified for a job to talk about, you know, the skills that you need in the job Mm -hmm. and not actually need a higher ed degree, which in a lot of cases, again, to your point earlier, has been a barrier to entry for historically marginalized groups. Yeah. And there are especially a lot of jobs, newer jobs, tech jobs, where people, you know, are developing those skills in non-traditional ways. They're mm-hmm. not going necessarily to a four-year college or even a technical college. Like, there's a lot of that they can learn on their own and get on hands-on experience. And right. so there's been a lot of applauding of this as a way to, you know, give more diverse candidates opportunities, you know, bites at the apple here. Um, especially people who didn't grow up with the kind of, to your point about money, the power and privilege money can provide to be able to go to college. Um, It's, you know, providing pathways to a better life and and a better job. So I'm excited to see that. Absolutely. Um, I was just talking or speaking with one of my um, fellow DEI colleagues about this yesterday. um, And one of her clients asked for help, basically, just reviewing some of their job descriptions and you know she just pointed out that she kind of flagged to them like why are you requiring a bachelor's degree or even a master's degree for some of these admin roles that people can you know learn over time and you know we're also at a point where you have YouTube University, you have Google University, you have ChatGPT University. And so there are so many things and so many skills. Um, Speaking of LinkedIn, they have their whole learning platform. There's Udemy. There are all these platforms, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like you don't necessarily have to have a full degree. You can also audit courses at universities and colleges for free and pretty much have a degree informally, right? So I think there are just so many options. And I think we're at a point where we need to embrace and acknowledge that. Um, I, you know, I, I can't help but just think about all the things I've picked up over the years that have nothing to do with the, the degrees I have, you know, and 100%. I think that's common for people. Um, and so the, am best, I, the best people I've ever hired are people who are curious and want to yeah. learn on an ongoing basis on their own, exactly. want to dig in and figure things out, yes. want to read for themselves. Yes. Like, a lot of those are, are I don't want to call them soft skills, but just like, personality kinds of things that don't have anything to do with whether the person you know had some kind of alumna deal to go to harvard you (laughs) know like that exactly i've i've worked with people who have gone to ivy league schools and and even harvard who Mm -hmm. are just incapable of operating in fast moving high pressure environments because you know a lot of those um you know career tracks are very I don't know, you'd call them like studying to the test. Yeah. Right. Like you, you're a great test taker, you know, you've got the right connections, you get into the high prestige places, but Mm -hmm. then, you know, you kind of fall off in real life. Whereas the people who had to hustle from the beginning, you know, are, are out there doing their thing. Absolutely. Ugh. I don't know. The, the one thing I will say about this, I'm, I'm excited about this. I think it's important to be able to shift you know, the workforce like this. But I will say that I feel a little bit, um, as a liberal arts major mm-hmm. who believes in the power of critical thinking, <laughs> yeah. I am. I do think that there is benefit to learning for learning's sake and being able to, you know, look at look at doing learning that um, is, isn't necessarily job skill focused. Sure. And I want to figure out a way to make that kind of learning, whether it's in a higher ed environment or not, like more accessible for people. Because I do think we need people, especially in engineering roles, for mm-hmm. example, that understand how humans work. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're starting to see a little more of that with the accessibility for you know folks to create e-courses and things like that through various platforms. With that said, I do think it, <laughs> it's a bit of a struggle to weed out what is actually helpful and reputable information versus what's not what's just like being thrown together by grifters for lack of better words or chat gpt or chat, you GPT. Said chat gpt university i was yeah. like oh god <laughs> it I needs mean, to get a lot more factually accurate for yeah it. it definitely does but i will say like chat gpt for me has been helpful for like you know quick tasks or i need you to like help me summarize this or i need you to give me you know a quick 
uh, few talking points for whatever it is. Like it, it's just it's helpful in that way. But same you to your point, especially for DEI, I haven't used it for many DEI specific things because there's been too, one too many times where I'm like. Yeah, that's offensive. However you worded this <laughs> or that's incorrect. Right. And so but I only know that from my own experience and expertise, not, you know, and it, had I not, I would just be like, oh, chat GPT told me this and let me copy and paste it and use it. So that, that's yeah. my point. Like you were, yeah. you had some critical thinking you could apply to that. Yes. Like, that doesn't sound right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we need to find a balance between like I, I definitely am pro skills first jobs. Yeah. But I also want people to have some, some just like history writing, some literature, some of the like liberal arts in a way that is, doesn't cost, you know, $100,000 a year. Yes. I'm here for that. Uh, what's your one good thing for the week? Um, I watched, I finally got around to watching the Whitney Houston movie, I Want to Dance with Somebody. And it was just. How was it? I thought it was really good. And uh, shout out to <laughs> um, Clive Davis, who is like 91 now. Um, and because of, you know, after I watched this movie, I was like, I wonder what he's been up to. And he was just like on, I can't remember if it was, I can't, it was one of the late night shows, but he was just on there in December talking about his involvement with the movie. He was one of the producers. Um, but it was just, it was just the moment where I slowed down and I'm like, wow, life is moving really quickly. We lost Whitney Houston back in 2020, 2012. Um, yeah, and it doesn't feel like that long ago. It does right? not feel like that long ago, but it also does feel like that long ago. Um, but what an incredible talent like that we were able to witness the voice, literally the voice. Like I don't think we'll ever see 100%. or hear anyone else quite like her. Like the woman literally just opened her mouth and was like singing from what other universe portal she came from. Um, <laughs> and it was just, it was just a nice moment. And I found myself like going back down her catalog, which I hadn't done in a while. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a, a, a really I don't know, just a nostalgic moment that I really enjoyed. Um, I also found it interesting. So as I was going down my rabbit hole about Clive Davis, I didn't know this, but in his book, he actually revealed that he is bisexual. Um, and that's, oh, yeah. And they also, yeah, yeah. And um, they also made it a point in this movie, spoiler alert, um, to highlight the relationship that Whitney Houston had with her best friend, Robin, which was intimate on a lot of different levels. So it was just a interesting and different way to just think about and see Whitney Houston's life. Um, and it was nice to know that people like Clive who actually knew her were involved in the, the making of the, the film. So highly recommend. She's a pretty good actor too. I went back oh, and watched yeah. the bodyguard oh, a few yes. weeks back. Oh my gosh. It's a classic. Amazing. Amazing. It's a classic. Uh, untouched. Oh, that, that's good. That is a good thing. Yeah, I think she's like the most awarded vocalist of our time. So again, not sure that we'll ever see anyone else like that in our lifetime or if future generations will. So Yeah. 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 She's the goat. Yep. All Go right. watch it. It's on Netflix. Love it. For as long as Love Netflix it. is still alive and standing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, that Netflix. sounded ominous. That's a I mean, after that live T V debacle. Whew. Yikes. <laughs> I can see them trying to do like a live concert. Oh, goodness. Like, like there was so much. I don't know if you watched. Uh, there was so much going on with uh, Coachella's live streaming. Yeah. The last couple weeks. I heard it was um, pretty I rough. I see Netflix trying to get on that because it was mostly on uh, YouTube. Maybe they can join anyway. forces and like work out the kinks first and then try. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Drill, uh, did you realize that this is our 10th episode? I did not. I can't believe it, but I'm so excited. And I hope people are still tuning in. Yeah. I mean, we've, got, we've had an audience that's been growing. I think this is a conversation that people are wanting to have. And I, you know, honestly, it's all you. I think that you, you, you know, I just kind of go... <laughs> Come, come listen to Adriel. But no, it's been it's been super fun so far. I think it's been fun to like iterate and figure out what we want to talk about yeah. and hear about the news. To try to not, like you said, not be all doom and gloom, but try to figure <laughs> out who's doing it right. <laughs> definitely, definitely. If you, if you are liking the podcast so far, please, please do uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, tell your friends about it. Yeah. 
I'd love to get a, a larger conversation about social responsibility and business happening because it is super important. Not enough people are talking about it, especially not in a cohesive way. So it's nice to be able to kind of bring the week's news about, you know, who's getting it right to everyone. All of that. Subscribe, like, share, review, all those good things. And we look forward to seeing you at the next Mostly episode. for Adriel, but I'm also here. For both of us. <laughs>